continue on our series called Jesus is King, walking through the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. We've been trying to do a chapter at a time, and tonight is no different. We'll be tackling chapter 5. It's pretty short, but it's, uh, it's, it's action-packed. It's a good one. And if you looked at chapter 4 last week and then tonight, this week, in chapter 5, you really see uh, the theme being God's presence. And so, honestly, we could have... We could have done chapter 4 as being part 1, and then chapter 5 as part 2, because you see the same theme, just two different elements of it. For instance, in chapter 4, it was all about the Israelites who did not repent of their sin, but um, found themselves trying to manipulate the presence of God so that they would help win a war versus the Philistines. And we see that God won't be manipulated. This week, in chapter 5, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the, so the presence of God, when we say the Ark of the Covenant, we're talking about God saying, okay, my presence is in this box, it's, it's manifest in it, so if you want my presence, you need this Ark. It has gone over to the Philistines, because they won the war, and we see what it looks like when God's presence is in the midst of people who have unrepentant sin. So they just blatantly say, you know what, I'm going to live different than how you, you say I should live. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to worship you. And it does not go well for them. God has a reputation in the Old Testament with the different nations. They, they, they saw that his reputation preceded him. He was a God of power. He was a God of holiness. And they feared this God. And so we're going to see kind of the, the bad side, uh, so to speak or the other end of God's presence tonight. But for us as believers, I don't know about you, um, but I, I don't think there's any greater gift that God has given the church, Christians, those who place their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, than his presence. Paul says it's a deposit given to us, sealed, given to us and sealed by God the Father, saying, hey, listen, I, I, I am entering into a covenant marriage with you together in heaven. We will be one day. That's where your residence is right now. But on earth, I'm giving you a gift that you will always know you are saved. You don't have to guess if you've been forgiven of your sins. You don't have to guess if I love you. I'm giving you this gift. And so for you and I, if you find yourself on a daily basis ignoring the presence of God, I know personally um, that that's misery when it comes to the Christian walk. Like, this is, this is a gift. This should be something that we find ourselves um, just enjoying all the time, no matter what is going on in your day, no matter what's happening in your week, to know that there is a promise that God has given, that his presence lives within us through his Holy Spirit. Our desire as believers should be to commune with him daily and go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. Like that's, that's like getting the most beautiful, wonderful gift you've ever had. You, you've waited your whole life, and you don't even unwrap it. You just leave it under the Christmas tree. And it's like, that would be so silly. And for many of us, we know God loves us, and cognitively we understand it, but we don't really experience communion with him. So we see God's presence in the New Testament in our lives as a good thing, um, but it was a bad thing for the Philistines in chapter 5. And so we're going to be walking through um, what it looked like for them to encounter the presence of God. For us tonight, we're going to see um, essentially a metaphor. For the Philistines, they had physical idols, okay? They had uh, a temple with physical idols in it that God 
sins crashing down. For you and I, we know that spiritually, emotionally, maybe even physically, we have idols in our lives that he wants us to get rid of. But even uh, deeper than that, we have sin that maybe some of it is incredibly deep-rooted, that some of it we've been battling with for years, and he's saying, I want that gone. And so as we walk through this tonight, we're going to see that God's presence in your life means he wants to clean house. And this is a process that we call uh, sanctification. Now, theologically, when we talk about sanctification, what we're saying is it's the process of becoming more like Christ. So not only doing the things that Jesus did with the heart that Jesus had or did them with, but becoming less like ourselves and in our former life and more like the new creation that we are in Christ. And some argue, they say, well, is sanctification like this process of becoming holy, um, is, it, is it really a process or is it something that happens immediately? And the answer is it's both. When you place your faith in Jesus, there are promises that you lay claim to immediately. We talked about these Sunday a little bit. But just like um, having a heart transplant or being a brand new baby, you know that you don't go from being a brand new little neonate baby to a mature adult overnight. It takes, it takes time. For some of you, it's going to take the rest <laughs> of your life to mature um, in that. And if you have a heart transplant, you don't get up running sprints the next day. It takes time uh, to heal and to walk in that new heart, to get used to it. And so to some degree, um, it is a process. So if, if, if someone asks you, is it a process or does it happen immediately, just know. Spiritually, the second you place your faith in Christ, if you, boom, if you die at that moment, when God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection and holiness of his son Jesus because you are found in him. You get to lay claim to that. That is a relief and that is beautiful. But the practical side of learning to walk and obey him and follow him, that is something that is going to take the rest of our lives. And he's going to constantly clean house. He's going to be trying to find uh, in us the things that need to be rid Uh, of us. And so I want you to ask yourself a couple questions as we walk through this. Are you um, are you enjoying the presence of God right now or is it just causing turmoil in your life? Are you submitting to the house cleaning process that God wants to do in you or are you rebelling against it? Your answer to these is going to determine very quickly whether you're enjoying your walk with God or whether you're finding yourself um, in an incredibly unpleasant place tonight. Let's jump on in. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Philistines had just beat the Israelites and sent them back and killed 34,000 of them. Verse 1 says, When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Verses 4 and 5. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. All right, let's park there for a little bit. This is about half the chapter already. It's a short chapter. But the first thing we see is that we've got to stop fighting for our idols. We've got to stop fighting for our idols. So context. In the ancient uh, Near East, they have, as you know, a pantheon of gods. So Christianity, uh, the Jewish faith, it is, it is monotheistic in that we believe in one God. Now, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but these other religions often were pantheistic in that they had many gods. And so for the Philistines, they had a long history with this God, and he was kind of one of um, a three-headed monster that they worshipped. So they had Baal, which... Uh, you see all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, um, as, a, as a god that they would worship. You had uh, Ashtaroth, that was um, one of the three-headed monster, And then you have Dagon. So um, this god, there's kind of a, we thought for a long time, because of the Hebrew word that, that um, describes the name, we thought that he was essentially a big fish. Um, but through archaeological evidence, we're unsure as to exactly what this God looked like, what this idol looked like. But essentially, they looked at this God to bless them in agricultural stuff. So the weather, rain, crops grow, all that good stuff. Fertility, um, he was a fertility God. So they looked at it to uh, bless them to get pregnant. They looked at him as a God to help with military adventures. Um, and they would then give credit to this God. So it was common when they would go out and fight, whether it be the Philistines or any other uh, nation back then, if they'd go out and fight, if they would conquer someone else's army, they would see their pantheon of gods. They would have their little, literal physical idols. They would take them, and they would make them bow down to their idols in the temple. So it was a way of just showing, like, hey, we are superior than you. We conquered you, and our gods are better than your gods. And so they were just doing what they probably enjoyed the most. Like, this is the best part of the battle. We get to take Israel's God, who we freaked out about. Remember in chapter 4, they were like, oh, no. No, what are we going to do? And then they got some courage and they have beaten the Israelites. And now they're taking the God and say, man, we're going to put this God that we once feared and make them bow down to our God. Now, the irony in it is that within about 100 years of all this, a young shepherd boy named David would come up against the Philistines and he would kill Goliath, who was their big dog, and he would do what? He would chop off his head and his hands. This is a sign of complete surrender and submission and, and superiority. And so God, our God, has done this to their God in advance. And I love it because if you read throughout the Old Testament, um, you see that the early morning hours, God had set times for worship where people would come to the temple. At this point, they would come to the tabernacle, and the Israelites would bow down. And God's saying, listen, my people, they were disobedient. That's why they lost the battle. That's why they lost the war. That's why I'm here in your camp. But even if my people aren't coming to the tabernacle, because the Ark of the Covenant's not in the tabernacle anymore, even if I'm in a completely different temple, I'm going to make the gods and everyone else around me bow down and worship me when I say worship me. Oh, man, the power that he's showing to say, you got nothing. You can put me around your idols, and you got nothing. You got nothing. And as I mentioned, this is what happens when 
for us as believers, knowing God doesn't now reside in temples or tabernacles. He resides in us as the temple. So the church, we are his people. His spirit dwells in us. We know he's going to clean house. He's going to make every idol in your life bow down to him. Every unrepentant sin that you've packed deep down into the darkest part of your closets. He's saying, pull it out. Bring it out. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't want to talk about it. I know that that you like maybe having it down there. Or you just know it's going to take a lot of work to get rid of it. But I'm going to drag it out. I'm going to constantly be doing that. So i got to imagine for them in this physical temple, they're seeing our God make their God bow down to him. I bet you when that big old heavy thing falls down and shatters, you got to think it shook that temple a little bit. And it's no different 3,000 years later for us in this room. That when he's cleaning house and making idols in our hearts bow down to him, it shakes our temple just a little bit. It's unpleasant. Knowing that there's, there's never going to be a time on earth with this, without Christ coming back where we're going to be without sin. We, we're humans. We struggle with sin. But knowing that he wants to reduce the sin in our li- lives, he wants us to repent of it. There should always be just a little bit of turmoil. Like, there should be times where God rebukes you because you got sin. And, and so it's going to shake. It's going to hurt. It's unpleasant. And our response to it is going to determine whether we enjoy this relationship with him or not. You see, the Philistines should have known something was messed up when they had to put him back up on his pedestal. When they had to fight for their own idol who they were crediting with the power of conquering the Israelites, and yet they're the ones having to put him back on his pedestal. And I know I've struggled with it, and many of you have as well, that when God reveals idols and unrepentant sin in our hearts, there's a lot of different avenues we could take, but one of them is that we just justify trying to make peace (laughs) with that idol and our God. Like the first thing we want to do is think somehow, okay, God, you have changed my life. Like 95% of everything I used to do crazy and different, it, it has changed. You have changed me. Isn't it okay if like I just keep this one little thing? Like I, I struggle with gossip. I've always struggled with gossip. And so isn't it okay if like we just, you know, it just helps me build camaraderie with the girls at work. And like can't we just keep that one? It's a little bit. Or, or, God, you know I struggle with lust, and I've had that going on my whole life, and I'm explaining to you, God, that there's a reason for that. And I was introduced to some things early on with pornography, and I didn't want that, but now I just, I just lust. And it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting anybody. We're constantly rationalizing and justifying keeping those idols in the same temple as a holy, perfect God. And if you justify them, you're going to find yourself in turmoil all the time. He's saying it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. He's saying, why in the world, when I died for you, when I, when I saved your soul, are you finding yourselves fighting for the very things I came to save you from? You're fighting for what I came to save you from. Doesn't that sound counterproductive? And that's why it feels like some of us are spinning our wheels in our walk with Christ. I, um, I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling with couples lately. It's heating up into wedding season. It's my least favorite time of the year. Just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> I'll be honest. That's, 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 I'm not kidding. But, again, if you are getting married, I would love to do your wedding. It's a special <laughs> thing. Anyway. 
we're we're ramping up the whole wedding thing and um i found myself just the other day sitting down with a couple and and walking through some communication issues and one thing led to another and they kind of were blaming each other they were bickering back and forth and it just went on and on and on and for the first time in a while i found myself just staring at them like just knock it off and you you thought that we were making some progress but then one would bring this thing up another would bring that one up and then they would say well this is my struggle with you another one would use the same thing against them say you do the same thing and they would just go from topic to topic blaming each other and and just fighting and I i said listen stop right now i'm gonna tell you this about marriage marriage means a lot of things but marriage means this that if you are going to leave yourself you're going to go from two people to one you are giving up your right to fight for the way you used to live. You are saying, I want to be with you and to create a brand new life, which means different personal habits, taking my thoughts, my opinions, everything else, throwing them out the window and recreating them for the glory of God with another person in my life. And so if you're going to spend your time in this marriage fighting for your own habits, fighting to keep your way going, and you're just thinking, hey, I'm, i got to learn to live with someone instead of i got to learn how to live a new life, you're going to be miserable. You've got to have a disposition of how can I serve them, how can I bless them, not how can I get them to see things my way. And we went down. Man, I was preaching. They didn't like it, but we just, we just went through it and played it out. And yet, when we enter this relationship with Christ, does the Bible not call it a marriage? And so some of the turmoil you guys are experiencing right now, I know I have in my own life, is that we keep fighting for a way of life, for personal habits, for flaws, that he said, you signed up to die to those things. And you don't die to them when you prayed a prayer to me at kids camp 20 years ago. You die daily to them. You've got to die daily to them. That's why he says, pick up your cross when? Monthly? One time at kids camp? Pick up your cross daily. Pick up your cross daily. you got to stop fighting for the very things that are holding you back in life. Some of us, we, we're ticked off right now because there's turmoil. And, and, and if we don't want to submit to Christ, we start to get deceived. Some of us have had this thought. Like, maybe, maybe God's not for me. Like maybe God is against me. Don't take it personal, okay? God isn't cleaning house because he wants you to experience pain. He's cleaning house because he intends to live there, okay? God's not doing these things in your life because he hates you. He's, He's doing these things in your life to show how much he loves you. He's working for you. He's not fighting against you. Hoarders don't become hoarders because they got nothing else going on in life. They don't become hoarders because they got bored. Hoarders, those who genuinely struggle with hoarding, generally do it because of psychological damage. And they hold on to certain things that tend in their world to have more meaning than it probably should. And God's saying, I got a clean house of all your past junk, all your current struggles, because I don't want you holding on to something That's not me. I need a clean house in you so that when you find yourself grasping for something, 
the only thing to grab onto is the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Are you fighting for your idols tonight? It's not worth it. Verses 6 and 7. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. How odd does that seem? Afflicted them with tumors. But Ashdod and its territory, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Okay, first off, how many of you got just enough hillbilly in you that you want to say, Dagon, Dagon, just a little bit like, oh, I could a hundred times as I was writing this, I kept saying it in my mind. Next thing we see, Dagon, Dagon. Disobedience always brings pain. Disobedience always brings pain. Isn't, it, isn't the irony of disobedience that like when you and I are disobedient to God, we're doing it because we think that there's somehow pleasure or joy or something else in what we're holding on to? And not obedience. Like we think there's more joy in what I'm going to choose to sin in than there is actually being obedient to God. And he's saying, if you don't submit to me, life will get worse for you. Not only can you not find that joy and pleasure that you think you can in this, or if you do, it's very temporary, but things are going to get worse for you. And it always goes that way. And it's almost like it catches us by surprise, does it not? You see, the Philistines, they're connecting all the dots. Like, they're not sitting here thinking, gosh, let's brainstorm what could possibly be causing our God to fall off his pedestal and and break into pieces. Hmm, we just can't figure it out. 20 chapters later, the Bible explains, like, no, like, it's very clear to them, it is the God of Israel that's doing this to our God and afflicting us in all these different ways. The issue is not comprehension, the issue is their heart. It's their heart. Humanity gets mad at God because he allows suffering. Like just in general, if you talk to people who who think of God and they struggle with God, one of the primary things they struggle with is how could God allow suffering? And you think that somehow becoming a Christian, you would then have like this great revelation that it's like, oh, I got the perfect answer for that question, right? And there's solid biblical answers for that question as to why God would allow suffering. But when you become a Christian... (laughs) You go from living in a world where you see God allow suffering to being a child of his where he's going to actually cause suffering for the sake of your growth. And he's going to give you a heart that loves him (laughs) if it doesn't get any crazier than that. But nobody sees the other side. You say, why in the world? Why in the world would God send, like, wasn't he just happy enough with making their idol fall down and break? Why has he got to send then tumors and afflict them in all these different ways? Why has he even got to do it? But tell me this, in your own life, what other than pain gets your attention? Right? What, what other than pain gets your attention? 
what other than ten plagues for the Egyptians are going to make them let the Israelites go out of slavery? And even in all those, they harden their heart over and over and over. And without getting into a big theological mess, God hardened their heart. And not only that, but in chapter 4, what did the Philistines do when they're about to fight the Israelites and they hear screaming in the camp of God or in the camp of the Israelites? They say, "Is this not the God who afflicted the Phil- or afflicted the Egyptians back in the day?" Like they know the story of the plagues that came on the people who held God's people in bondage. And here they are holding the Ark of the Covenant in bondage, trying to mess with it, getting the same thing done to them. They know they're connecting the dots. And yet, at this point, they're still not submitting. They're still not relenting. They're still in rebellion. They're still in rebellion. I, um, I thought parenting was going to be easier. It's, it's not as easy as I thought. It's kind of hard. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Early on, I thought that somehow my child would be able to obey if I simply taught him correctly. Like if I just loved him and I sat and I explained things and I was a master communicator and like we just really worked things through. It has not turned out that way. He has been rebellious since day one. And I love his little soul, but we started flipping fingers. Eight months in, nine months in, and we didn't want to, but we thought, okay, we got we got to flip fingers. But now we're to the point where like we've got to either step it up and start the spanking, or we got to figure out something else. And it is not like he <laughs> his his level of obedience is not um, giving us other options. <laughs> Let me say that. But Tara and I, we've really got to struggle with this, and we've got to find out what's biblical in this. And it has been so difficult to come to the conclusion that like not only should we probably spank him. But it's of God. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son. When you're looking how to, as a first-time dad, you got a two-year-old boy, and you're thinking, should we spank? Should we not? What do we do? Like you, Sometimes scripture's unclear. <laughs> and then other times, it's literally as clear as can be. And you're just like, man, seriously, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him, he no, not... He who gets kind of angry and, and, and spanks him out of anger. No, he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Of course, for some of you, you've been around back when we walked through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, we talked about God disciplines his children. He, he does it out of love for us. Now, when we discipline Silas, when we flip fingers, we always talk and we make sure we're not doing it out of anger. We're doing it out of love and we explain to him what's happening. It feels like it's even more twisted doing it calmly. But he actually, <laughs> he actually, at times, kind of picks up what's going on. But it's the only thing that gets his attention. And so it is with God. Some of you got some junk going on. And please, again, when we talk about this whole discipline thing, don't, don't leave here saying, it's the wrath of God. God hates me. He's doing this against me. Um, when there's, according to wrath, Jesus took it on the cross. But when it comes to discipline... That's still presently happening to all who are God's children. And the problem is sometimes uh, 
the outcome of wrath and, and discipline look similar. And your, your heart is going to say, maybe God hates me, maybe this is wrath. And the Bible's saying, no, it's not wrath. If anything, it's discipline. The good news is, though, if you want it to stop, you just got to submit. You just got to submit. You just got to, to repent of what he's telling you to. For a long time, before Silas would go to bed, Tara and I would say, hey, buddy, clean up your room. Like, he would trash his place. I mean, we're talking everything that was standing. He would make sure it was flipped upside down. He, just, he would trash everything. We'd say, Silas, clean up your playroom. And he would just say, no. And he'd run away, and it would just be a fight. And he'd be like, ah. But we quickly learned we got to do something different. And so what we started doing was taking him by the hand and letting him know what we were going to do and then started doing it with him. And on occasion, he'll bail on us. But in general, like he picks it up with us. So it's like, oh, different. And, and not only that, but like we actually, to some degree, kind of bond through it. It's like, hey, who can do this quicker? And, and we, we race and we make a game of it. And by the end of it, like you can tell, the spirits in the room are just pretty calm. Some of us are so used to having earthly fathers, mothers, authoritarians who simply yell at us from across the room, clean up, get rid of your junk, that we've just de developed a bitterness and a resentment towards anyone who tells us to get rid of the junk, to clean things up. You need to know God's presence in your life. Okay, this, this could be crucial for some of you. God's presence in your life is not to be primarily a reminder that there is junk going on and you need to get rid of it. It's a reminder that he came to be the healer of the junk. His presence is, is as much, hey, I'm going to let you know through conviction that there's still junk in there, but I'm not telling you to do it on your own. It's only through the Spirit's work that you can truly rid yourself of that. Because that's what the frustration, right? We see God say, you got junk in your life. you got sin. You, you need to turn from it. And so we struggle with lust and we say, I just got to go home and I got to figure out how to do this whole thing. And without getting on the internet, without doing this. And I got to make sure I, I avoid the girls at work because I'm going to gossip. And I got to make sure. And, and God's saying, it's my spirit that told you of the sin. But it's more so my spirit that's going to heal you from it. Walk with me. I'm taking your hand. And guess what? My presence, you despised my presence when you were unrepentant. My presence is not only convicting you and walking with you, we're going to bond through this. You're going to love me more. You're going to experience me more through this. It's like, wow. That's different. That's different than just fighting against him all the time. God's never going to do something in your life that the end result is not a deeper connection and communion and relationship with him. There's power in pain, but there's more power in the message behind the pain that there's a loving father. Verses 8 and 9. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, 
let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So now they're going to they're going to change it to a different location. So they brought the ark of the Is- of God so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Third thing we see is you've got to recognize rebellion. You've got to recognize rebellion. So the Philistines have already admitted they knew the hand of God was on them. And what do they do? <laughs> they just push God away. They just send God to someone else. Like, it's their people. It said that earlier in the last couple of verses that these tumors had impacted them and the surrounding area. And so they're saying, like with their nasty hearts, okay, we know God is against us. we got to get rid of the ark. What do we do? We could send it back to Israel right now, or we could send it to our friends. <laughs> hey, you guys, we love you. we got something for you. It's probably not what you think. It's going to be weird at first. You're not going to like the way it looks on your skin, and when things are coming out, trust us. It gets worse. Here you go. And then they leave. Like, what, what kind of friends do that to one another? And yet that's what's happening. That's what's happening. If you push God away, you're going to find not only you are miserable, but the people around you are miserable. We've all been around people. We've been those people from time to time where we were early in our walk with Christ, we were confronted with a sin, or we were confronted with something that we knew, man, that is an idol in my life. I didn't realize that, that having material things were an idol for me, or I didn't realize my career and moving up was an idol. I didn't realize my own children were an idol, or my spouse was an idol, or whatever it might be. And something that we just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm being confronted by God or by my friends and family about this, and I, it's not sitting with me well. And I know there's a smidgen of truth to what they're saying, but I'm just ticked off right now. And so they push them away, and they push God away, and everyone else around them is just like, man, we are brokenhearted. We're brokenhearted that you're running. It happens. Unfortunately, it happens too often. And so we see that God's obvious first response, what he wants from us is submission and, and repentance, to turn from that sin, to trust in him, to to. Uh, to love his presence more than the presence of the junk within us. But it's incredibly important for us in this room to recognize what rebellion actually looks like for us. Because it's usually not just saying, God, I hate you, I'm running away. Like That's usually not how it, how it takes place. So there's a couple important things that we've got to see, and I'm going to draw from chapter 4 and chapter 5 in this. The first one is what I just mentioned. It's pushing God away. It's pushing God away. It's not liking the conviction, and, and so, boom, I'm not even going to deal with it. Don't want to hear from you. I'm going to separate myself from the church. I don't want to hear no messages. I don't want to hear no preacher. I don't want to hear from God. I'm not going to pray to you. I'm just going to kind of pretend like we never had this kind of fling going, right? I'm going to end it. You see a lot of times in non-believers, like the Philistines in chapter 5, or, or brand new believers, this is the first response of rebellion. Is Let's just get rid of God instead of getting rid of the problem. Because it's going to cost me too much. I don't want to go through what this is going to cost me. I like holding on to this junk. The weird, sick sense of security that some of our past mistakes have in our hearts, is it not? 
Some of us have wretched sin in our hearts, and we have stories that go along with them, and you would think, hearing from the outside, that we would be eager to get rid of it, and yet there's a sick sense of security in holding on to that. And so we push God away. Now, is it is it possible then for us to to actually push God away? Well, we know as believers, like if you're truly found in Christ, we know it's impossible. You can't get rid of the Holy Spirit. You can't tick him off enough to make him leave you. He, he loves you. He didn't come down into humanity 2,000 years ago, die on a cross and be raised again just so he could come in and out of your life. He's not a deadbeat dad. He's a good daddy. And when he comes, he comes to stay. Okay. And he and it says in Romans that the gifts of God are irrevocable, and the Holy Spirit is a what of God? It's a gift of God. There's no takebacks on this. But what you can do is you can grieve the Holy Spirit. When he talks to you and you find yourself in rebellion, you push him away, then you stop hearing from him. And some of us in this room maybe have this story where you say, man, I, I know God was working on me for a while and I didn't really repent of that. I didn't, I didn't take it serious and I haven't heard from him in six months. I haven't heard from him in, in a long time. And God's saying, why would I tell you step B when you weren't obedient to step A? So why don't you go back to the last thing I told you to repent of the last thing I told you about that I talked to you on more than one occasion about, and why don't you obey that? And we're saying, if we, just, if we just say no to that, and then can't we move on, God? Can't you tell me other good stuff? Like, I need some direction in my life. And I was hoping that you'd somehow bless me. And I was hoping, and he's saying, no, if you're faithful in the little stuff, then maybe we can go to the bigger stuff. But you still don't care about the sin that I care about, repentance. And then there's a, a second way that rebellion looks. And this is sneaky. This is for some of the mature Christians, so to speak. Okay? This is, this is where you, you might not ever see this one. And I think there's a lot of us that can be in rebellion and, and not even know it because this covers things up. This disguises things really, really well. And that is switching the focus. So the first way is just pushing God away, and we see in chapter 5, that's what the Philistines do. And the second way that we see rebellion typically looks is what the Israelites do in chapter 4, and that's switching the focus. Eli knew his sons were jacked up, and what does he focus on? Young Samuel seems to be doing things right. Hey, boy, let's, let's hang out together. I got sons, and I know they're jacked up, but yeah, let's do this. Israelites, they know something's messed up because they were the ones who told Eli that his sons were messed up. And they don't do anything about it, but they say, hey, God, we know you like to conquer new countries. Let's go fight the Philistines. Let's switch the focus from our lack of integrity behind the scenes and go win a battle. That sounds fun. God's saying, no, not the way I work. I don't do it. And so a lot of us find ourselves in rebellion because we simply switch the focus. We say, let's focus on some other stuff, God. I know, um, I know you've been cleaning things up for a while. I, just, I, I don't want to deal with, with, with this, so let's, let's, let's look at how I've been serving the kingdom. Let's look at some of the good things going on. And that's where it's so scary is because believers can, can shift the focus to, God, here's what I'm doing for you. Here's some of the good things happening. Here's how you've grown me in the past. And we're just, we're just not going to deal with what maybe you're poking our heart on right now. I w was talking to someone 
not too terribly long ago, they, they came and they said, hey, w- give us some advice on small groups. We've got a lot of small groups in our church, and uh, we're looking at shifting the culture, and some of them are really unhealthy, and we're wondering, what do we do? How do we address all this? And I said, you're going to have to address all of them. Those who are unhealthy, they might have to end up stopping being groups and, and starting fresh. And he said, no, 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 no. We can't do that. That would be bad. And I said, no, you can do that, and it could be good. <laughs> and, and so we kind of argued about it a little bit. We had a different philosophy on things. And he said, here's what I think we should do. Even though we know about half of our groups in our church are bad, they're just unhealthy, they're introverted, they, they don't want anyone else to be part of it, they don't reach out to anyone, they're kind of just little gossip groups, and, and it's just junk. If we get a few good groups, here's what I think we should do. We should go and do training sessions, and we should focus on and highlight what the good groups are doing. So the bad groups leave. I was like, okay, that's never the way the Gospels work. To see good, and then you become good, and, you know. I said, so that's kind of like going to the gym and saying to your personal trainer, I, I, I need to get in shape. I need some help. Do you got a diet? and maybe an exercise regimen that, w- that I can partake in, and he gives you everything you need to do. And then you come back in a week or two, and you say, listen, good news, bad news. Bad news is I've been eating donuts and, and all kinds of snacks and crazy stuff and, and all that stuff. I, I, I didn't actually stop eating the bad stuff. But good news is now, oh, 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 this is louder, and let's focus more on it. Good news is I did everything you told me. I'm eating carrots. I'm eating vegetables. I got everything going, and I'm working out. It's good. Now, what I think will really benefit me is if I just focus on the good stuff I'm doing and just not talk as much about the, the bad stuff, that it'll be okay. He'd say, no, I'm not wasting my time. That's not the way it works. You eat the good stuff, and you get rid of the bad stuff. You eat the good stuff, you get rid of the bad stuff. Every single day, it seems like I go home and I ask Silas the same question. What'd you do today, bub? At lunch, I say, what'd you do this morning? I come home after work, what'd you do? And there's like a hundred things he could tell me. I already know because Tara's been texting me of the things they've been doing. They go to the library, they go to the zoo, they have fun, they hang out with his friends. Like he's got good things happening in his life. But without, like he never tells me any of the good stuff. All he remembers is his sin. And he remembers it like incredibly clear. So I'll say, what'd you do today? And he'll say, I hit Milo on the head with the broom. I'm like, okay. And then we'll walk past that and I'll say, what else did you do? And he'll just, I hit Milo on the head with a broom. And then one day it was, I threw a pin in the, in the water. Someone had an outdoor pond in their backyard, and he threw their pin in the water and ruined it and, and got in trouble. And, like, he just constantly telling me of his junk. That's all he thinks of. That's all he remembers. And I was like, man, it's not a fun way to live. Some of us, when God convicts us, I'm talking to you Christians who have been walking with him for a while, when he says, hey, There's still some junk in you. I want to cleanse. Some of us do the opposite with God, and then we say, hey, man, things are going good lately in the church. I've been growing. I've been learning more about your word. And, uh, man, I feel like I've been praying a lot more. That's good. And 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 we switch the focus to focus on, God, there's been good things happening in me and in the church, and let's just rejoice on it. He's saying, no, you're not too old to grow. 
And growth doesn't mean you do lots of good stuff for me as much as it means you repent of the stuff I'm telling you to repent of and then fill it with the good stuff. Let me ask you this, Christians, knowing knowing that there's junk in your life he wants to get rid of, when was the last time in prayer or in reading God's word that he rebuked you? That he just told you straight up, that needs to go. When was the last time you knew of an issue in your life that needed to be repented of and you actually turned from it? Like you didn't just hear it in a sermon. You're like, oh, I love conviction. Christians are the weirdest of all the humans because we love conviction. Like we'll, we'll, we'll come hear a sermon and like just get shouted at by the preacher and be like, good sermon. Great amount of conviction. And it's like, is that good really? Like, is that you, you, like people, they love it. They love it. But it's only good if they actually repent. When was the last time you knew there's sin here? I'm turning from it. I'm going to trust that the presence of God and his love for me are better and more fulfilling than whatever I thought I could find in that. I'm turning. And you actually did it. If your life as a mature believer is not marked by your repentance, even at this age, you're probably not as mature as you thought. Last but not least, Verse 10 says, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Last but not least, we've got to break the cycle of disobedience. We've got to break the cycle of disobedience. So we read over and over and over and over and over again, God is plaguing these people, and they just shift the ark and God's presence from city to city to city. And then finally, they all get together and like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, Mm-mm, maybe we can obey this God. And it says that then finally, their prayers, they, their cries were heard in heaven. I don't care what you've done, where you've been. If your heart is to submit and repent, it will always be heard in heaven. God loves those prayers. He loves those hearts. And finally, submit. I've often said God's people, God's people should be known for loving repentance. Loving repentance. Repentance has a bad name in the church because it sounds like a lot of work and it's scary and it's not fun because it talks about sin. But we should love it. It, it, It's more than just a basic command. It's a lifestyle of the mature. It's a gelling of two wills. It's where your faith goes from lip service to, okay, I'm walking with you, God, and I do realize your path is better than mine, and I'm going to gel with you. I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you to come into my world and align with me. I'm actually aligning with you. This is repentance. Repentance, again, is not only turning from your sin, it's a changing of your mind that what God has and who God is and what he has done is better than everything else that you thought was once in his place. We should love it. And yet, I know there's probably some in here who find yourselves 
habitually struggling with the same issues, and you right now, maybe in your life, you feel like the Christian walk (laughs) and the presence of God feels more like death than life. What does Paul say in Corinthians? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. And yet for some of us, it feels like bondage. You guys have been with me. I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick, but you guys have been with me through the, the saga of the buying a new car thing, and it, it continues. Um, been affirmed, and, and we're glad that we ended up getting getting the car that we got, but we got to sell the, the old one now. And I, again, I like the adventure. I like to haggle just a little bit, um, and we put it on Craigslist. I talked to some, some people who uh, know more than I do about this kind of stuff, and they said, best bet is Craigslist, Facebook, just the free things here locally. Um, someone will snag that up. I'm like, okay, let's do this. So I put it on. And I saw right before we posted on Craigslist, there was like a disclaimer that says, like, there's a bunch of scams out there. It's like, yeah, I know. I put my email address there. I put my phone number. We have yet to get an email. We have yet to get a phone call, but we have got tons of text messages, scam after scam after scam after scam. It started simple, like they would just copy and paste the title of it and say, is this still for sale, and then kind of lead you astray, Um, and they would just be crazy numbers from all over the country. Then I started to look into one of them um, because they started to get creative. I've got two or three different versions of the same one where it's a, it's a text that says, this is from Cla- Craigslist, you have notifications. Well, Craigslist doesn't notify you. And so it sends you a link to go type in, log in your information. It's a fake page. They get your information. Uh, there's another one, a, a, a Craigslist one, that they, they had a fraud deal on. Um, there's a, uh, the typical, um, hey, we're in the Air Force, or they use some kind of patriotic thing that makes you love them. And, and um, we're going to do uh, Western Union or PayPal. We got to, we, and then they make it like an urgent thing. Like, we got to leave um, quickly and I got to figure something out. Um, my favorite one was this one. They wanted to hear about the history of the car. And, and so they said, here, this is my favorite site. Will you go and do it? They had made their own, um, their own Carfax site, basically, called pincheck.com. And you go there, you enter in your PIN, you then do like kind of a down payment type of deal, not where you're paying for it, but you enter your credit card for incidentals kind of thing, like you do at a hotel, and and then they got your credit card information, boom, and they go. I mean, like, just, we're talking three days, and I've got bombarded with all these that I can't even tell if there's even a legit one in it. And so Tara and I went from kind of excited to start this journey to like, man, We are bombarded with junk and temptations and deceit and trickery, and it is unpleasant. And then it looked like we started to get some legit offers, and they weren't exactly what we wanted, but it was like, eh, (laughs) maybe we'll do this. And I was thinking, how in the world is the best way to get rid of all these scammers and the deceit and the temptations. And it's very clear. You sell the car. (laughs) You sell the car. You see, when the car is for sale, the evil ones will come out of the woodwork. And, And for some of us tonight, 
you have been convicted of certain junk and sin in your life, and you're holding it up to analyze it, to count the cost. You count the cost to follow Jesus, not to repent of the sin. And, and we have said, hey, you know what? What is this going to cost? What's this going to take? And as long as it is for sale, so to speak, the enemy is going to send his demonic temptations and deceit to tick you off and to come in, and you're going to find yourself beat up more than you ever realized. And he's saying, get rid of it. Just get rid of it. If you hold it up to be analyzed, you will find from the depths of darkness all kinds of nasty creatures coming out to make the situation worse than it ever was to begin with. The only thing worse than having the sin in your life is analyzing it, deciding what to do. That is a dangerous place to be. That's why anything other than immediate obedience, if it's delayed, it is still disobedience some of us tonight you know you have deep rooted personality issues that lend themselves to sin you've got anger you've got rage that has got you into some trouble some of you in this room you have fear and you've come to terms with your fear Yet you know, if you're not trusting in God, then, then what you're in is a sin. And yet you've come to terms with it just in your life. I'm a fearful person. I'm just going to deal with it. Some of us in this room have deep-seated behavioral issues. We have pride. We have greed. We have lust. Some of us are liars. And we don't think about it. We don't want to be liars. But in our conversations throughout the day, we find ourselves just lying. A little bit here and a little bit there. Some of us gossip and we slander. Some of us in this room struggle with these things and it doesn't feel like there's hope. For the Philistines, the presence of God was a horrible thing for them. Because they didn't want to follow him. But for anyone in this room who legitimately wants to follow him, who legitimately wants to submit to him, the presence of God is not what you need to be fearful of. It's what you need to embrace and find your joy in. Because that's where God's power is. There's so much power in the presence of God. And when your focus shifts from defending and fighting for your own junk to I'm going to finally just submit and let him do what he's been wanting to do, you will find what you thought your idol had so much power, you're going to find that the true power is in the presence of God. And he can conquer anything in your life. He did not come to die for the sin that you're letting rule your life right now. He doesn't want, he came to die for it. He did not come to die for it so that you could continue to let it rule. He's saying it's time to be done. It's time to be done. If you don't know what to do, you can always pray. And you can always say, God, I'm struggling tonight because I know there's junk, but I don't even have the desire to repent. You can pray for the desire to repent. You can pray for wisdom. You can pray for courage. You can pray for strength. You can pray for boldness. And you can trust. God's going to give you everything you need if he rids that out of your life. Immerse yourself in the good news. 
Because if you're trying to rid yourself of something in your life, but you don't know what is actually better than that, the next time you're tempted by the junk you just kicked out of your heart, you're going to fall into that temptation unless you know there is something better. And then trust and submit. And know that it's going to be dirty and it's going to be hard and it's going to be messy, but it's going to be something that bonds you together and you're going to commune with God in it. You're going to love him more and more and more through it. And he's going to prove himself faithful and he's going to prove himself to be the one true God, better than any idol you might have built up for yourself. Let's pray.